0: People ask me sometimes what I like about preaching, um, what parts of it I like and what parts of it I don't like. And I like almost everything about it, but one part I've never liked is giving my sermons a title. I just feel like I have to boil down a whole 20 or 25 minute talk into like four words, and that just seems impossible to me. And and truth be told, the best sermon titlers have these witty titles that always make this great first impression on the listener. And, and I'm not very good at that, and so I don't want to make a bad first impression. So whenever possible, I've gone out of my way not to title my sermons. And I figure my listeners can give it a title of their own if they, if they care to give it a title. But like, so like I say, I'm reluctant to it all. But, but then I thought about the genius of the TV show Friends. And I'm not sure how many of you are Friends fans here. There's so few willing to admit it, or I'm getting old. I don't know. <laughs> option, so. I'm not really a fan. In fact, I have some elaborate theories about the TV show Friends and how it's a pathetic fantasy about a lonely culture like ours, dreaming what it would be like to have friends, and that's the best they can come up with. But that's, that's a whole other sermon. Thanks. The the genius, though, of the show, Friends, if there is a genius, is the way they title their episode. And Friends episodes always start with the one where. And so one episode may be the one where Ross and Chandler get lost, the one where Phoebe lies. There's no witty little titles to the episodes, just here's what happens. And so I've decided to give that a go in my sermon titling this morning. And that's why today's sermon is titled The One About Integrity. So hopefully you know what today's sermon is going to be about. When you go back to the bulletin, you can be like, yeah, that was the one about integrity. I've been thinking a lot recently about how being a Christian in our culture opens you up to being misunderstood. And I think that's especially true in a culture like ours, which on the one hand is highly polarized, right? Meaning that people in our culture tend to have strong opinions and are given to a a strong dislike of people who have other opinions. And on the other hand, we also are part of an internet culture where people can trade stories about how dumb their people they disagree with are more easily and more quickly than they ever have before. So we live in a world where there are lots of opinions and lots of ways to share those opinions and not a whole lot of nuance in the way we, we share those opinions. Uh, If you doubt this, um, you might just have jumped on Facebook as I did last night around 11 p.m. right after the George Zimmerman verdict was handed down. And you were able to see people on both sides so certain they knew what was right and so certain uh, that the people on the other side were not right. And I just felt like, wow, as a Christian to respond to this is terribly complex, terribly difficult. And I felt like if I were to offer anything meaningful as a Christian... It would be something that nobody would understand. (laughs) It would be something that nobody would appreciate. Uh, We live in a world that fancies itself very thoughtful and more progressive and more thoughtful than the ages that came before us. Yet at the same time, we're very prone to shoot first and ask questions later when it comes to opinion issues like this. So in a culture like this, I think thoughtful Christians struggle with a credibility problem. There are all sorts of things that we believe that are strange and foreign and even bizarre to the culture in which we live. Uh, Traditionally-minded Christians may feel this when talking about culture war issues like abortion, like same-sex marriage, where traditional Christian positions are more and more understood as fringe positions rather than respectable mainstream alternatives. And, of course, far far more important than those culture war issues... There are all sorts of foundational theological Christian beliefs that are just bizarre to the culture around us. Dead people living again, right? A carpenter turned rabbi 2,000 years ago is the key to your eternal destiny. That's bizarre. That sounds weird to the culture we live in. Again, a culture that fancies itself very thoughtful, but is generally unwilling to listen to the reasons we may have for believing those things. How do we maintain credibility in a culture like this? It's an important question and not just for our own sake, not just so that we feel good about having credibility. Right? It's not simply so that I can pat myself on the back and say, someone takes me seriously. That's not why I'm asking this question about how we maintain credibility. I'm asking this question because we think that we have a word that can change lives and a word that ultimately can transform the world. How do we credibly speak that word in this culture is an important question. How can we speak that word in a culture that may be dismissive of the way that we think? I read an article about this issue by a philosopher at Eastern University, which is right outside of Philadelphia, and he was talking about a music video that was openly derisive of Christians. And he wondered what the best response was. And he said, well, there's no way to argue with the music video, right? There's no way to raise rational arguments about this music video because the rational arguments would fall on deaf ears. Why? Because the singer in the video is not doing something rational. They're not presenting a case. They're appealing to the heart rather than the mind, right? That's not to say it's right or it's wrong. It's just to say the music video sought to convince you Not through rational argument, but by powerful words, powerful music, powerful images that overwhelm your heart when you watch the video. So so what's a Christian response to that? Christians have generally done one of two things, uh, neither of which in my mind is terribly helpful. But one option is that Christians keep aiming for the head rather than the heart. And here I'm thinking about Christians who may be big into apologetics, people who find the the best historical, philosophical reasons to defend the Christian faith. Now that's a fine job, but truth be told, in many areas in our culture, it's kind of a fool's errand because our culture is not interested in rational answers to these questions. I'm convinced today that the main roadblock to people becoming Christian is not intellectual, it's not that they can't reconcile things in their mind. It's not that they think I can't be a Christian and be smart. It's that they think I can't be a Christian and be nice. That makes sense? That, that overwhelmingly the picture of Christians that people have in their mind is not a nice person. And so that's the main, the main roadblock. The main reason they won't become Christian is because they, they can't quite fancy themselves becoming one of those people Who are not nice. So I think continuing to aim solely at the head is not a great decision. The other option, of course, is focusing on the heart. And that's what the fellow who wrote this article said. He said we might need people to make our own music videos. Right? We might need people who can make Christianity can kind of speak a word that might make it relevant to today's culture. So we drop the rational approach, we drop aiming for the head, and we just aim for the heart. But I think this, problem has its, or this issue has its own problems, right? For one, sometimes when we try to make the gospel cool, we fail. And we fail spectacularly sometimes. We create a lame imitation of pop culture sometimes. And even though sometimes, even if we do a pretty good job, we still make the gospel disposable, I think. Here's what I mean by that. I, I look through my old contemporary Christian CDs, my White Heart, my DC Talk. If you're my people, you're out there. You understand these CDs I have. My White Heart, my DC Talk, my Mortification, my, my Jump Five. And I, I'm, I'm embarrassed, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and I wonder, is that the best thing for us to be doing? Should Christians be creating art that we know five years from now is going to wind up in the clearance rack? Is that the best thing for us to be doing? That's what pop culture does. It has a, a short shelf life. It ages and dies. And it serves to, to highlight our generational differences rather than our continuity in Christ. Even as I'm talking about my White Heart, my DC Talk, some of you are old enough that you don't know who those people are. And some of you are young enough that you don't know who those people are. And if my uh, spirituality is rooted in those people, well, that just serves to highlight how very different we are rather than how united and how one we are. So, this isn't meant to be a whole long discourse on contemporary Christian music. That also is another sermon for another time. But I just want you to know, I think aiming just for the heart has its own set of problems. So, I don't think we just aim for the head. I don't think we just aim for the heart. So, Mike, what do you think we do? This is what I want to suggest. If we want to be taken seriously in our culture, for the good of the kingdom and for the good of this world, we shouldn't be so worried about the heart or the head, Instead, one of the best things we can do is to be a person of integrity. Now, often we think about a a person of integrity and we have kind of in our minds a, a noble person who just doesn't quite fit in with the culture. Someone everybody likes theoretically, but nobody can stand to be around interpersonally. But I think it's it's actually the opposite, right? We live in a very fragmented world. I'll talk more about it later. But I think one of the reasons why we're so polarized as a culture is because we're at war with ourselves. That we're so conflicted with other people because deep down we don't know who we are. And we take our angst about that out on other people. We're so consumed with creating and defending an identity for ourselves. That we treat other people as collateral damage in that battle. We'll talk more about that later, but I think people of integrity are different than that because integrity implies a certain wholeness, a certain ability to be yourself, even when it's not popular, but not to be a jerk about it. That's what makes people of integrity compelling, The world values people who stick up for what they believe in, but deep down, we live in a world that's nervous that they could never do that when the chips are down. When the world sees somebody who does it, someone who truly is what they appear to be, a person who is not afraid of being disliked or misunderstood, the world honors that person. And right now, we are not known as that kind of person in the world. Rightly or wrongly, we're simply not known. Christians are not known for being that sort of person. Christians are often derided, and this is partly our fault and partly not, as being hypocrites, as people who are The opposite of what they seem to be people who say one thing and do another people that preach love, but practice hate. So integrity is important, not just because you want to set some kind of personal purity record and impress the Wesleyan church. It's important because it begins to put the lie to the way our culture thinks about us and begins to help us build a better reputation in the world. So what what does it mean to be a person of integrity? In the passage from 1 Thessalonians, I think Paul gives us some insight into what it means to be a person of integrity, and I'd like to lift three things, this is after all a sermon, three things for your consideration this morning. One, integrity is about good behavior. Now that sounds terribly legalistic, but it's in part true. A person of integrity regularly does the right thing. When Paul wants to build a case that people should trust him and respect his authority, he said, look at the way I've behaved when I was with you. I didn't trick you. I didn't flatter you. I wasn't greedy when I was with you, even though I could have been. I came to you with pure motives. I was gentle. I was like a nurse caring for children. I remember how tenderly I took care of you. And and Paul only has the right to say this stuff because he's done it. That's the only reason he can say, trust me. Now it is a, uh, I kind of alluded to the Wesleyan church before. It's, it's interesting for me as a Wesleyan outsider coming into the Wesleyan church where, you know, 40 years ago or so, Wesleyans were generally associated with a kind of legalism where people were told not to drink or smoke or dance or go to movies or whatever else, a whole uh, play cards, etc. And that's not what I mean when I say be a person of integrity. I'm not talking about keeping rules For rule's sake. What I'm saying is, we need to conduct ourselves reliably, well, and honorably when we're with other people, not because we value keeping the rules, but because we value the people that we're talking with. If we really think we have something to share with people, as Paul truly thought he had something to share with the Thessalonians, we have to conduct ourselves in a way that when push comes to shove, we can say, Remember how I've been with you. Remember how I've acted when I've been with you. Now, this, of course, does not mean that we're going to be perfect. Right? Not even a sanctified Wesleyan is perfect. And that's, again, another sermon for another time. I've got lots of sermons i preached as a result of this, I guess. We're all going to fall short. right? But when we do, confession will come quickly, honestly, and completely so that others can learn even from our mistakes. Right? We can't behave perfectly, but we can become people who behave well even when we screw up. More on this later. But I want to challenge you on this point this morning, right? So often we treat our our personal behavioral issues as private. No one has a right to judge me but me. It impacts nobody but me how I act. But this text shows pretty clearly how Paul's life of integrity helped him to demonstrate the love of Christ in a better way than he would have if he had not been a person of integrity. We all have issues of sin that we struggle with. I struggle with gluttony. And gluttony is not a, there's not a line when you've eaten too much and then you become a glutton. Gluttony is instead a a persistent identification of your identity with your food. Right? And a fear that if I don't eat the food I want to eat, I'll be unfulfilled and unhappy. This morning, I challenge you to remember that whatever battle you're fighting is not just about you, but it is about your ability to show Jesus' love and mercy to the world more completely. I need to do whatever I can to whatever extent possible, conquer and control my gluttony, not so that I can boast to Jesus about how I beat gluttony, not so that I can wear a nice medium shirt that says I beat gluttony on it, right? But so that I can have a healthy body that's going to be useful in showing the love of Christ in a broken world. So integrity matters and part of integrity is the way we behave. Two, integrity is about living In the direction of your calling. Integrity is about living in the direction of your calling. Integrity is not just about behaving well. It's about wholeness. And as I said before, we live fragmented lives many times. We have lots and lots of responsibilities in our lives. To children, to parents, to employers, to churches, to schools, to clubs, to sports. And all of these responsibilities... Require different skills. And sometimes we find ourselves being radically different people in these different situations. At the office, we are the deferential and responsible employee, but deep down, we hate it. And so, what do we do? We repress our anger at the office, but we come home and blow up at our spouse and our kids. We feel pulled in so many different directions. And we feel that we have no way to cope with all the different people we're called to be. And so our lives are fragmented and fractured. And everybody else takes the hit for us for our lack of wholeness. In contrast, a person of integrity lives what we might say an integrated life. A person of integrity knows who they are, knows who God has made them to be. And so when they're confronted with a situation... They don't have to go rummaging through the Rolodex of personalities and they say, okay, which person am I supposed to be now? But instead they say, how can I be the person God has made me to be now in this situation? It might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but there's a world of difference. There's no, there's no taking off one identity and putting on another. You're the same person wherever you are. And the goal is to find creative and fruitful ways to be that person in different situations. So often people say to me, you know, when I was a a pastor in Pennsylvania, it was a very suburban, very fragmented kind of area. People would say things like, I feel like myself at home, but I don't feel like myself at work. And a person of integrity says, "I I know what the self is that God has given me, and I need to be that person wherever I am. And in fact, if I'm not doing that, I'm not showing faith in the God who gave me myself that makes sense? <laughs> like, if you're this person God has made you to be, but you don't think it's enough for this situation, you're not really putting trust in a God who gave you that personality and that way of being. So a person of integrity knows who God has made them to be and lives that out in different situations. And again, we see this very clearly in what Paul does among the Thessalonians. Paul says, I faced a lot of opposition, but I still he had courage to carry out his ministry of proclamation. Why? Because that's what God made him to do. In fact, did you catch what he said where, when Paul says, uh, I was, In fact, I was enabled not only to, to proclaim the gospel of God to you, but share my very self with you. Right there's a way in which Paul is so integrated so living out his calling that he doesn't even know if he's just doing his job or if he's being this person just being himself. There's there's no clean and neat line where his calling ends and his self starts. He's just being naturally the person God has made him to be in the world. Despite persecution which was never fun, he finds fruitfulness in being that person. How about you? Part of being a person of integrity is having this kind of wholeness, knowing your calling, living it out in whatever situation you find yourself in. If you want to be the kind of person that the world can trust, this is part of it, to have a sense of what God made you to do and being unafraid to do it wherever you are. Now, how we know that, that's a whole other sermon, as I've been saying several times. But basically, that only comes with slowing down long enough to look honestly at your life And to see what you're doing that's really bearing fruit for the kingdom. And what you're really doing that's making yourself and everybody around you miserable. And doing more of this and less of that. Three. A person of integrity is open to the critique of others. This passage shows Paul being very interpersonally vulnerable. And that's especially so when you consider... The fact that Paul is writing as a young man here. Uh, It's one of Paul's earlier letters. And often Paul's early letters are sort of marked by this prickly personality. You know, I can't imagine Paul was a fun guy to hang around with sometimes. And that especially goes for young man Paul. But here he's being very vulnerable. He's telling the Thessalonians how much he loves them. How much he depends on them. He says, I have no joy. I have no strength if you are not strong in the Lord. I I want to see you again just to see how you are because if you're doing well, I'm doing well. But if you're not, I'm not. I feel joy before God because of you. In all these things, Paul is vulnerable, even dependent on the Thessalonians. Let me tell you about yesterday. Yesterday was a miserable day for me. Because I took Jack to soccer in the morning in Fillmore. Well, actually not because I took Jack to soccer in the morning at Fillmore. Uh, Soccer was fine. It was a typical five-year-old soccer game. There was a lot of chasing a ball, but whatever. Uh, But when I was with Jack at soccer, something happened. And I'll be glad to talk about it in more detail another time. This just isn't the place for details. Suffice it to say, an acquaintance took me to task for a parenting decision I made. Now, I want to be clear. This person had the authority to do this, right? They weren't being a jerk. There was nothing wrong with what they did. But those of you who are parents know how this is, right? Most of us take a lot of pride in being good parents, even when we're actually too sleepless to do a good job. But we take pride in being good parents, and we really get defensive when someone criticizes our parenting. And I, I do, too. I love my kids a lot. But here's, here's the thing. This guy was right? He was right to criticize me. I needed to make a change in the way that I was taking care of my kids. Now, when he called me out, I went through a few stages. And all of them were natural, but none of them were good. First, <laughs> first, I was frustrated with him for calling me out. Second, and this is most inexplicable to me, I was angry at Jill for some reason, even though she had nothing to do with it and was not even there. Third, I wanted a friend around so that I could tell them about this person. And because, there's the preacher thing coming out. Because I know how to spin a story, I wanted to tell them the story in such a way that I could make this guy the bad guy rather than me. This way, two things were done at once. I killed two birds with one stone. I could feel better about myself and this person could think better of me. And as I say, all of these stages are natural when we're brought face-to-face with a mistake that we've made. We do whatever we can to reassure ourselves that we haven't blown it. We're not at fault. It's not our problem. I'm okay. And so we shoot the messenger or we blame an innocent spouse or, or we do whatever else we can to convince ourselves and other people that we are innocent. We are okay as we are. If you just knew me, if you just understood, you would know that I'm one of the good ones. I wanted to reassure myself of that. And I wanted to reassure everyone else of that. Mostly because I was afraid I'd be lumped in the bad parent box. And then people would be like, oh, (laughs) that's him. He's the bad parent, right? But here's the thing. That's not acting with integrity. Why? Why? Because as I just said, right, integrity is about living your life in the direction of the person that God has made you to be. It is, whatever integrity is, it is not about reassuring yourself that you are okay as you are. If I want to be a good parent, then when someone makes a suggestion, I should listen to the suggestion. Why? Because if I listen to it, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, maybe I'll learn something, maybe I won't. But if I don't listen to it, then I'll never grow. And I'll stagnate. And more broadly, of course, if I want to be a person of integrity, if I want to be a person whose mission in life is maximizing my kingdom potential, then when someone points out a place where I might just be wrong, then I need to listen. Why? Because they might just help me in meeting my goal of being a person of integrity. And if not, there's no harm in having listened to them. But but if I do the opposite, if I insist on my own righteousness, then I will never, ever grow. Too often, we as Christians are hung up on appearing virtuous rather than being virtuous. And in the end, that is a death trap. I need to be vulnerable to the critique of others, even dependent on it, because it's a sure sign that God is working in my life, even if it hurts a little. Using other people to point me towards him. Now, I've said that being a person of integrity is very important if we want to reclaim some credibility in our culture. I think this really gets at the heart of it, right? The Thessalonians love Paul. Why? In part because he depends on them and he says, I love you, I need you. Yet so often we as Christians enjoy the sense of being under attack by the world. And when someone points out a flaw in us, we go through a whole bunch of theological and semantic gymnastics to explain why we're not really wrong instead of saying, thank you. Thank you. I'll think, I'll think about that. Maybe I'll even change because of what you've said. Do you see how that's a gospel thing? Like, when you say that to someone, you take someone who's coming to you, perhaps in an adversarial enemy situation, and you've treated them as a friend. A- and what's more, You've helped someone who may not even know God. You've helped them to see that that God has used them to help you. I'm a preacher, right? I love it when people come to me and say, something you said really helped me grow. Something you said really pointed me to God. Imagine how good that would feel to someone who has no idea who this God even is. When you go to them and say, thank you for that. That changed me. That impacted me. I think I'm a better person now and I know God better because of what you said to me. That stuff only happens when we drop the need to out-argue non-Christians and start out-submitting them. When we have absolutely nothing vested in our own sufficiency, when we have absolutely nothing vested in our own righteousness, we're finally in the spot where God can start to use us as people of integrity. People living in one direction to become more like him. Well, enough. The sermon has already been longer than most of mine. It's late and it's hot. I've tried to argue that integrity is one of the most important characteristics that Christians should exhibit in this time. And that Paul demonstrates it in three main ways here. Through his reliably good behavior. Through his faithful use of his gifts and his calling. And through his radical openness to and dependence on others. And I'll just close by asking you, which of those three things could most use a tune-up in your life? Reliably good behavior, a faithful use of your gifts, or an openness to independence on others? What, what's keeping you right now from being a person of integrity as God has called you to be? I just want to close with a word of prayer that we as a people might exhibit that kind of integrity so that God will draw more people into the kingdom through us. Let's pray. God, what I have said this morning is, of course, impossible for us to do on our own. It's impossible for us to be people of integrity on our own. You have showered the world with grace upon grace, though. And we know, God, that this is your desire for us. And so you've given us the tools and the grace whereby we can become people of integrity. So, God, we pray for our life together as a church. We pray that we would be this sort of people. People that the world would look at and say, here are a group of people who are very faithful to the gifts you've given them. A people who are reliably honorable. And a people who are willing to be dependent, even on us, to help them grow. We pray, God, that that would be exhibited in our lives personally and also in our corporate life together. So that in all these things, we can give you glory and honor. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.